The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Carl Sinn. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the School of English Staff Postgraduate Seminar Series um, in collaboration with the Trinity Long Room Hub. My name is Ginevra Bianchini, and I am one of the conveners for uh, this term alongside Orla Donnelly and Clara Poynton-Smith. I am very delighted to welcome you all to this afternoon's talk in the series, which is an important and supportive space for postgraduate students, faculty, uh, and guests to present and discuss their current research. Today, we have our beloved Dr. Bernice Murphy uh, with her paper, What Happened 100 Years Ago is Happening Again, Confronting the Ghosts of the California Past in During Carpenter's The Fog. To give you a brief introduction to Dr. Murphy, uh, she is an associate professor lecturer in popular literature here at the School of English. Um, she has published extensively on topics related to American Gothic and horror narratives. Bernice has also published on the writer Shirley Jackson. Um, she has two new books out this summer, uh, a monograph called The California Gothic in Fiction and Film, and um, co-edited with Sircha Niflain, the essay collection 20th Century Gothic, both from Edinburgh University Press. Dr. Murphy will speak for about 40 minutes and uh, we will have at the end uh, about around um, 20 minutes for a Q&A. Before we begin, uh, a bit of housekeeping. Um, please use the Q&A function at the bottom uh, of the screen at any time to ask a question. Uh, the chat function is only available uh, for general comments. And if you're tweeting, please tag at TCD English, at TLR Hub, and at Seminars TCD 2021. It is my pleasure then to uh, introduce Dr. Murphy. Uh, the floor is yours. I'm very looking forward to this talk of this American horror story. Thanks, Ginevra, and thanks to everybody. Um, I'm just going to share my screen. Here we go, hopefully everybody can see that. Um, okay, so it's a pleasure to be here today. My paper is um, an extract from my forthcoming book about the California Gothic. Um, and so uh, this is part of my uh, section on foundational Californian um, horror stories. So in John Carpenter's 1980 horror film, The Fog, small town California is haunted by angry ghosts determined to enact violent revenge upon those who have materially benefited from their demise. As in other California Gothic narratives of this type, the relative newness of the state, from an Anglo-American perspective at least, does not constitute any kind of defense against the supernatural. Indeed, the bloody and contested circumstances associated with the state's establishment have here guaranteed that California has its own ghosts, even if they are not always recognized as the products of a regionally specific haunting. So this is John Carpenter, and this is collaborator, collaborator and co-writer Deborah Hill. I'm not gonna talk about her today, but she's a really important woman in horror cinema, and I just wanted to give her a shout out, she's a bit of a legend and she's a really important part of the making of The Fog as well. So The Fog begins with a classic framing device, a nocturnal campfire scene during which the official account of the origins of the Northern Californian coastal community of Antonio Bay are outlined to local youngsters. They seem to be kind of Boy Scouts or something like that. Antonio Bay is gearing up to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the supposedly tragic event which led to the granting of the town's founding charter. On April 21st, 1880, we are told, the Elizabeth Dane, a clipper ship laden with gold, was engulfed by fog, hence the title, and supposedly accidentally dashed on the local rocks with all lives lost. Despite the warnings given by the seat storyteller, old sea dog, Mr. Mackin, a little bit of a, um, a classic Gothic um, reference there, Arthur Mackin, played by John Houseman, here he is in his little cap, that when the fog returns to Antonio Bay, the men at the bottom of the sea will rise up. 
No one in town is, of course, as is the way in supernatural horror narratives, people are always surprised by this kind of thing, most people. No one is prepared for the terrifying events which will soon unfold as the past comes back to haunt the present. On the night before the anniversary, between the hours of 1 and 2 a.m., so this is in April, the eerie quiet of Antonio Bay's quiet, empty streets is disrupted by a succession of strange occurrences. For those of you who've seen the film, you might remember this. It takes place right at the start of the film. It's a superbly eerie, atmospheric scene of sort of empty streets and all kinds of sinister things happening. Pay phones ring in an earthly chorus. Neon lights flick on and off on the streets. Petrol flows from gas pumps that would be very expensive these days and groceries rattle on the shelves. And as I've indicated, it's a superbly evocative, really, I think, one of Carpenter's finest um, sequences. And was, and was actually anticipated by a film that was made a few years before. Another, I would argue, and I'm arguing, foundational California film, albeit much less well-known one, which is 1974, this 1974 film, Messiah of Evil, which also has an awful lot of kind of nocturnal eeriness taking place in a small town, coastal California community. And is also very much like The Fog, a film about the ghosts of the California past coming back to haunt the present a hundred years later. Um, I don't have time to talk about it in much detail here today because I want to concentrate on The Fog, but Messiah of Evil, it's available on Shudder. It's a remarkable film. It's a beautiful film. It's got two absolutely superb set pieces, one in a supermarket and one in a cinema that are just absolute classics. Um, and if I could recommend it to people, I really would. Messiah of Evil is interesting in that it's actually about the horror of the Donner Party, which I write about in my book as being this foundational California Gothic real life historical episode that feeds into a lot of subsequent California um, horror. So um, if you want to read about it, you can buy my book, which is out in July. But um, I just want to stress there that The Fog is kind, was kind of anticipated in some interesting respects by this film that came out six years earlier that unfortunately not that many people have seen. It's kind of, it's, it's a more impressionistic film. It's a more kind of incoherent film in some ways, but I think it's a really remarkable film. And I would, again, I would recommend it. So back to the fog then. Um, when local clergyman Father Malone, played by Hal Holbrook, discovers a leather-bound journal on this same very night that all the weird stuff starts happening on the, the eve of the 100th anniversary, he finds this journal hidden. One of the walls of the church sort of crumbles slightly, and he finds this leather-bound diary written by his grandfather, also Father Malone, which I'm going to come back to because that's slightly confusing for reasons I'll talk about later. His grandfather was one of the town's founding fathers. So he finds this hidden in the walls of the church that same night, reads it and realizes from his grandfather's anguished confession that the deceased passengers of the ship that, that crashed on the rocks a hundred years before have very good reason to be angry. They were actually leprosy sufferers originally confined to a nearby island. Led by a wealthy man named Edward Blake, they asked the leaders of the then very fledgling and kind of small settlement of Antonio Bay if they could set up their own community nearby. But despite a seemingly amicable initial agreement, the community's leading citizens, including his own grandfather, met in secret on April 20th, 1880, between 1 and 2 a.m., and decided to engineer a shipwreck so that they could kill off the lepers and steal their gold by wrecking their ship. They knew that they had a lot, a lot of gold on the ship. So fires were left burning on the shore and they lured the Elizabeth Dean towards the California coastline so that it would be destroyed. And then when the gold was recovered from the shoreline, it transformed Antonio Bay into a proper town. So the towns, as I talk about this in a lot more detail in a minute, uh, the very foundation of the town is greed and murder. Now the ghosts, it seems, have decided, as we'll find out later on, that six must die, six townspeople must die this is in place of the six founding fathers of the town to avenge this callous crime upon which the community was founded. As the Night of the Fog, as it is actually called in the script, it's referred to as Night of the Fog, that was the original title, unfolds a loose coalition of newcomers and townsfolk, amongst them DJ Stevie Wayne, played by Adrienne Barbeau, who was actually, I think, married to John Carpenter at the time, very good actress, her young son Danny, who we'll come back to later on, pragmatic local man Nick Castle, Tom Atkins, Hitchhiker Elizabeth, who's played by Jamie Lee Curtis, who was, of course, fresh off Carpenter's 
massive smash hit Halloween. This is the follow-up to Halloween. Town bureaucrat Mrs. Williams, who's played by, you can see the lady there with the blonde hair, that is the great actress Janet Lee, star of Psycho, uh, Touch of Evil, and of course, Jamie Lee Curtis's mother. There's a few little like Hitchcock references in there. And Father Malone, they make up this kind of crew of, crew of light, I guess you might call it, although that's actually not a good analogy here, who struggle to escape the ceaselessly enveloping fog and the vengeful phantoms who follow in its wake. Now, the fog has frequently and persuasively been interpreted as a critique of the avarice and inherent corruption of the United States. As Steve Smith argues, it hinges upon actively deconstructing Antonio Blaise's glib self-celebration and mythologizing tendencies. He says, indeed, an important strand of Carpenter's film works to undermine the town's mythologized self-image as the very essence of American self-reliance. It's an interpretation echoed by the film critic John Moore. He argues that it is, quote, very much in keeping with Carpenter's negative opinion of America's capitalist history. In essence, the story is about the underside of the American dream. Similarly, for another critic, Kendall R. Phillips, the film is one in which, again, one in which this attack by supernatural forces is clearly, quote, predicated upon the crimes of the past. He argues that the parallel here with the long history of American treachery towards indigenous people who have also who have had their also had their wealth ransacked and their people killed is clear. The fact that the 100th year anniversary of Antonio Bay takes place in 1980, only four years after the US celebrated its bicentennial with much self-congratulation, adds to this sense that the film is an allegorical critique of the ideological underpinnings of the nation. This aligns the fog with another notable 1980 horror release, Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of King's The Shining, which is, as critics since Bill Blakemore and Frederick Jameson have noted, absolutely saturated, even more so than the source novel, with references to the millions of Native Americans displaced and murdered by European colonists and their descendants. And of course, um, there are many theories about, the fog, about, um, about Stanley Kubrick's um, The Shining, but I do think that the, the references to Native Americans, um, it's, it's, it's one of the more plausible ones. I'm very much on that side of things myself. Now, as, however, as another critic, Murray Leader, has noted, when asked if, it, if he intended the fog setting as a statement, statement against America, Carpenter came across as slightly defensive. Quote, let me say that every government that has existed most certainly has done the same thing. I'm not simply being <laughs> critical of the United States. Now, Leader is actually the only critic before myself to, to gesture towards the possibility that the film also contains elements which point towards a more regionally specific history, noting, quote, the overwhelmingly Caucasian town's Spanish sounding name. It's a trait, he observes, which connects the film to another California horror film, this time a Southern California horror film rather than a Northern California horror film, Poltergeist. Um, Poltergeist is quite a small, small a suburban community, very affluent, very middle class, built in Southern California in the hills, um, have destroyed the hills. Um, it's another white California community, which as leader points out, quote, is built on a heap of lies and the skeletons of betrayed souls and subsequently carries a curse that its inhabitants are, are unaware of. In both cases, the repressed returns in skeleton form, quite literally in Poltergeist. In fact, it was rumored that real skeletons were used, um, which I've always thought sounded a bit dodgy from a health and safety perspective, to assault the community itself. So to be clear, I concur entirely with this critical consensus which situates the fog as a critique of the contested foundations of the US. I think it seems fairly self-evident. I would 100% agree. But my contention here is that the regional details picked up on and briefly referenced by Leader are more than just a matter of passing interest. They're in fact a vital facet of the, quote, old-fashioned ghost story that Carpenter wants to tell. The fog, I believe, is first and foremost a California ghost story. And its allusions to the region's pre-American past lended a geographically and historically specific resonance, which has thus far been largely overlooked. Until now, dramatic music. The most obvious California connection lies within the fog itself. Northern California is, of course, notorious for its foggy weather. I once went on a business trip, a oh, business trip, I know that sounds fancy, it was a work trip, to California and had roughly four hours to spend in San Francisco and I could not see a thing <laughs> because it was so foggy. Uh, that was rather devastated. And apparently that is just, that is just San Francisco. It's an incredibly foggy place in both cliche and reality. 
Now, Laura Alice notes of the weather conditions in the Point Reyes Peninsula, where much of the fog is actually shot or was actually shot. Quote, a typical day might bring bright sunshine in the morning and turn to dense fog by afternoon, making for a damp, cool and somewhat harsh climate. Now, this propensity towards fog is more than just a, a, a mild detail. It also has often had tragic consequences for ships traveling along the northern California coastline. It necessitated the construction of the fog's most resonant visual landmark, the Point Reyes light, Lighthouse. Carpenter notes of the lighthouse, which in the film is the location of heroine Stevie's uh, radio station, so you get a lot of shots and a lot of shots of her inside the lighthouse, that the site is considered, quote, the second foggiest point in California. So it is the ideal setting for film about the fog in a very literal sense. It was constructed in 1870 to warn passing ships of the danger of the Point Reyes headlands, quote, which pose a threat to ships traveling between San Francisco Bay and locations to the north. And the lighthouse was actually retired from service. Automation came in. It was retired only a few years before the fog was made. It's actually quite a big tourist attraction now. Now, in his director's carpentry, Carpenter notes that the wrecking of the Elizabeth Dean was inspired by real-life tales of, of California shipwreck. So he doesn't actually specify, this is on the DVD commentary himself and both Deborah Hill talk about the impetus for the film. It's very interesting. He doesn't specify a specific tragedy, but there were actually have been plenty to choose from. As Michael White observes in Shipwrecks of the California Coast, the state has seen more than its fair share of shipping disasters, particularly because of its treacherous coastline and the very changeable weather. Many of these disasters were caused by poor weather. He relates that in one 36-hour period in 1904, four ships were lost off the California coastline, thanks to a, quote, dense fog that, quote, fell like a pall over the entrance to San Francisco Bay. And White actually singles out the Point Reyes Peninsula, stating, quote, that since official record keeping began in the mid 19th century, it's frog fog shrouded, frog shrouded rocks would be very different. And um, fog shrouded granite rocks have claimed more than 50 ships. He further observes that the fogs, the fogs and the danger of the fogs were obvious even to onlookers during the earliest days of initial European exploration citing Sir Francis Drake's description of the Northern California coastline as, quote, a place beset by vile, thick and stinking fogs. I'm going to come back to him in a minute. Francis Drake. Now, the shipwreck, which I think may possibly have inspired Carpenter, even though he doesn't say it directly, because it took place in 1881, just one year after the fictional sinking of the Elizabeth Dean in the film, is that of a cargo bark. I don't know what a cargo bark is. That's just what this type of ship is called. So if anyone knows in the Q&A, I cheerfully admit I know nothing about ships um, from the mountains. Uh, but this cargo bark called Erin Star sank just off Point Reyes in 1881. And it was attributed directly to thick fog. The fog whistle didn't blow and the ship um, was wrecked or crashed, as I prefer to call it. But I believe wrecked is the correct nautical term. As John Moore notes of the moment in the film when lead character Nick, he tells a story about his father having this weird encounter with another ghost ship distinct from the Elizabeth Dean and coming home with a Spanish coin that then disappears, a Spanish coin which was minted in 1867, a doubloon. Murr says, it reminds us that the Elizabeth Dean is not the only ship in the ocean. Nick's story attempts to extend the horror of the fog by suggesting that ships disappear at sea all the time under mysterious circumstances, that the ocean is a realm of fear and that perhaps we should all be afraid of it. Now, of course, fear of what might be lurking in the unfathomable ocean depths has, of course, been a staple trope of horror and gothic texts for many a century uh, and uh, deployed by authors such as Herman Melville, of course, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, very famously William Pope Hodgson, H.P. Lovecraft. Of course, that was kind of his very much his wheelhouse, creepy things beneath the ocean depths. And the Japanese author Koji Suzuki, who uh, has written a lot about, um, particularly his uh, seminal sort of novel Ring, is uh, very much about um, ancient things lurking in the depths of the ocean. Now, Emily Alder notes of the, this long-standing nautical, nautical Gothic tradition, as she calls it, that seafaring itself, or at least its representations in writing, often have strikingly Gothic dimensions. And Gothic seas need not even be storm-filled. There is, wrote another sailor 50 years previously, something in the first grey streaks striking across the eastern horizon, which combines a boundlessness and unknown depth of the sea around, and gives one a feeling of loneliness, of dread, and of melancholy foreboding, which nothing else in nature can. 
So Alder continues, these words belong to Richard Henry Dana Jr., whose 1840 memoir, two years before the mast, formed part of the 19th century Atlantic world's uh, vibrant written culture. Dana's language evokes the sea's gotten potential. As a thing of nature, its unknowable ambiguity, unsoundable depths, and ominous effect are clearly singled, signaled, sorry, and so are its inherent contradictions. The ocean space is boundless yet oppressive, illuminated yet indiscernible, all surface yet all depth. Now, in presenting us with a supernatural threat, such as this one explicitly connected to this unknowability of the ocean depths, the fog displays its strong debt to this nautical Gothic tradition. Now, interesting, as you've just heard, older quotes from Richard Henry Dana's best-selling memoir of seafaring life, which is in fact the foundational text in California literary culture. It's actually one of the first kind of like American novels about California. It's really important. And it's actually, I read it because, um, you know, I like to do read actual books about the topic I'm researching. I find it makes it slightly deeper. Um, it's a very readable um, um, account and uh, you learn a lot about how to tan hides in it as well. So if you've ever wondered, you'll find out. Now at the time of uh, Dana's voyage from Boston to the West Coast, he was kind of like a young man, Harvard graduate. He had really bad eyesight and he thought essentially in a very mid 19th century way that you know going on an ocean voyage would kind of make a man of him. Um, and it did, uh, and he had a great time. Uh, at the time of his voyage from Boston to the West Coast in the mid 1830s, California was still seen as a promising but underdeveloped backwater in the rest of the US. Gazing at the then newly begun settlement of Mission San Francisco, just over a decade before the discovery of gold, Dana predicted that the coastline would be key to its future. He said, if California ever became a prosperous country, this bay will be at the center of its prosperity. The abundance of wood and water the extreme fertility of its shores, the excellence of its climate, which is as near to being perfect as any in the world, all make it fit for a place of great importance. And so he went on to imply that once a more enterprising and industrious people than the idle, excuse me, as he called them, the idle, thriftless native Californians took charge. So the fog's engagement with California themes extends beyond these obvious references to the state's distinctive coastline and weather. Several important scenes of the movie were also shot at sites of key significance in California coastal history. Now granted, this, this may not have been entirely intentional. Carpenter states that many of the shots which showcased the lonely splendor of the coastline were shot in response to studio orders after the original cut of the film was submitted to quote, give it more mood and more fear. They were disappointed it wasn't gory enough, even though Halloween isn't actually that gory, but the studio felt that um, they needed to jazz it up somewhat. So a lot of these kind of landscape scenes in particular, and a lot of the more violent scenes in the film were kind of went back and reshot. But nevertheless, these regional locales still have notable historical reverberations. And during his audio commentary, Carpenter actually highlights these resonances. He's very aware of the historical California resonance of these scenes. Now, one such moment occurs when Carpenter notes that the beach where the young boy, um, son of one of the main characters, a little boy called Andy, he's playing around in the beach and he finds uh, uh, golden coins, dub Spanish doubloons um, shining in the water, gold coins in the water. And then when he picks up the coins to take them home, they transform into a ship's main plate, the Eliza Dean. So they transform from gold into a tangible reminder of the ship that he can actually bring home. So this is set in Drake's Bay, the site where on June 17, 1579, the English explorer Sir Francis Drake arrived in his ship, the Golden Hind. It's actually often forgotten about that, you know, there were a lot of people um, around California, a lot of European explorers before, um, obviously, it became um, uh, American territory in 1850 and for many centuries before that. So Drake and his crew stayed for about five weeks in in uh, in uh, the, the coast in Northern California. They were kind of refueling, and they were you know with food and sort of water, and uh, they were fixing their ship. And it, it was during this time that one of the first major contacts between European explorers and the native inhabitants of California actually took place. This was the Coast Miwok people. Along with the expedition sent from New Spain in the 1530s and 40s, Drake's sojourn in California marked the beginning of the centuries-long calamity that would devastate California's indigenous population. 
He also, and this is often forgotten, um, he staked an English claim to California. California was actually the first, in a way, a roundabout way, it didn't stick, of course, the first New England in America. He named the region Nova Albion and allegedly erected, quote, a brass, a plate of brass claiming it for the crown. As the great California historian uh, Ken Star, or Kevin Starr, who's been a huge influence on my own work, I mean, a monumental influence in my book, he notes, although Drake's influence on in Nova Albion can be seen as mere bravado, it was nevertheless a symbol of great importance as far as California was concerned, and has always been treated as such by historians. For it underscored from an English point of view, the competition between two great civilizations for California and other regions on the American continent. Now, in his own analysis of The Fog, Kendall Phillips observes that the film belongs to the subset of Carpenter-directed films that are siege narratives. I'm thinking of the likes of Assault on Precinct 13, one of my own favorite um, uh, films, or even Halloween could be seen as kind of a siege narrative, that are the result of dark forces from the past released in the present. He continues, this is of course a classic motif in ghost stories in which some unfettered spirit connected to a tragic past returns. These injustices do not disappear, but are buried in secret places where they wait the opportunity to re-emerge. Now, although it's a relatively brief scene, the scene where the little boy Andy finds this coin, these coins to transform back into the ship's nameplate that is, is of course shot in Drake's Bay, is set the morning after the first deadly manifestation of the ghostly mariners. Um, basically, they murder the drunken crew of a fishing vessel called the Seagrass. Now, Andy's discovery of this tangible relic from the Elizabeth Dean, like Father Malone's discovery of his grandfather's journal, provides a direct link between the mysterious events happening in present-day San Antonio Bay and the horrific wrongdoing of its founding fathers. As such, I think these artifacts support Phillips's observation that in ghost stories, historical crimes lurk in secret places, reawaiting discovery. And I think that is very much the case in the fog. Now, Andy's discovery of the coin or, or nameplates, because it's kind of both, takes on an even deeper significance when we consider the local significance of his find. Historically, disappearing coins, and one in particular, are actually associated with Drake's Bay. The explorer's brass plate left by Drake is said to have featured Queen Elizabeth I's name, the day, the year, his own name, and a sixpence piece hammered onto the brass plate, which had the Queen's image on it all intended to mark the first English claim to the land that would become the US. As Edward van der Porten, who's written about this, notes, Drake's plate and the post on which it was mounted vanished after he sailed off across the Pacific, but his memory survived in accounts of the voyage, when it was quote unquote found and historically authenticated in 1936, it soon became the state's greatest historical treasure. Or was it? 40 years later, however, it became obvious that this so supposed treasure was actually a practical joke. It was a clever hoax perpetuated by a fraternal order of historians specializing in the study of the American West. It was essentially an elaborate practical joke. They never thought anyone would take it seriously. Members of the group had manufactured and then discovered an entirely fraudulent plaque that they'd kind of reconstructed from contemporary accounts at the time of what it said. And they'd actually put wee markings on it that apparently if you looked at it really closely, you could tell like it was a fake, but actually it was never authenticated properly. Um, so for many decades, it was believed to be this actual like foundational, like Anglo-Californian sort of artifact. And actually it was a load of nonsense. So they never imagined it would be taken, mistaken for the real thing. And it was only many years later that they sort of shamefacedly admitted this. In an interesting coincidence, I couldn't quite believe this when I discovered it. The mastermind of the hoax was a man named George Ezra Dean. And it was in 18, 1979, the year the fog was filmed, that confirmation of the hoax was released. So completely coincidental, but really interesting. George Ezra Dean at 1979, 1979, the name that the film was. So it couldn't possibly have influenced, I don't think, the fog, but it's just a really remarkable coincidence. And the fact that it's associated with Drake's Bay, I just think is too good to be true. It's kind of brilliant. So like Andy's discovery, Drake's plate was not what it seemed to be. And it happened at a kind of the same time. So in real life, Drake's attempt to stake an English claim to California field, although Anglo-Americans would come to dominate the region following the end of the Mexican-American War and the discovery of gold in 1848. 
As, as Leader notes, while the name Antonio Bay hints at a Spanish-Mexican heritage for the town, that heritage is rigorously suppressed within the town itself. Every major character is a white individual of what seems to be non-Hispanic descent, and there's no explicit mention of a Spanish, Mexican, or of course, Native American prehistory for the town. Yet at the same time, there's a very direct connection between events in the film and the state's suppressed Hispanic and indigenous past. And this is the prominence afforded to the town's church, when I'm going to talk about for the rest of, the, of this. Oh, so this is actually the nameplate that I forgot to look at. So this is, it says six must die as well. It's sort of a change, the lettering changes from Eliza Dean to that, and then water comes out of it. So this is the church, and although its exact, exact denomination is never explicitly stated, the exterior, which you can see here, is a real-life Episcopal church of the Ascension located in Sierra Madre, California. Built in 80, 1888, uh, the church was added to the National Register of Historical Places in 1977. Adding a nice touch of nautical Gothic to the building is the fact that the church bell originally belonged to a steamship called the City of Dublin, which was wrecked off the Oregon coastline in 1879. Now, Antonio Bay's church is of central significance to the film's narrative of dispossession and revenge, and I'm certainly not the only critic to have pointed this out. It's only the climactic act of sacrificial atonement undertaken by the brave Father Malone in recognition of his grandfather's part in the plot. He kind of offers to give his own life that finally provides the ghostly mariners with their pound of flesh. Um, it initially seems as if his heroic act of atonement has kind of like worked and his life has been saved, but right at the very end, his head is, is lopped off. Uh, I'll show you that image right at the end. Steve Smith argues that Malone's acceptance of his faith introduces a logic of sacrifice and redemption. Furthermore, he adds, Malone's death provides a convenient means of bypassing the acceptance of communal guilt, and that rather than forcing a recognition of their iniquities, Malone's death prepares the path for their continued collective avoidance. So uh, that it's an interesting sense here that maybe uh, Antonio Bay, the people aren't quite as, um, that they haven't quite atoned as much as they could because uh, one man has sort of taken it all on board. Now, even before the fog descends, Malone seems dissatisfied with his role as the spiritual leader of the community, as Murray Leader points out, and other critics. He has a drinking problem. He is considered unreliable and erratic by centenary organizer Mrs. Williams. When his grandfather's incriminating account is found, it only seems to verify his subconscious sense that the church and the town have been built on metaphorically unhallowed ground. Yet, as is typical in supernatural horror narratives, his warnings are not taken seriously. He says, our celebration tonight is a travesty. We're honoring murderers, but nobody listens to him until, of course, people start dying. Now, the ambiguous nature of Father Malone's exact religious affiliation is also suggestive. He possesses many of the cliched signifiers of the cinematic Roman Catholic clergyman. He harbors doubts about his vocation. He has a drink problem. He has an Irish name. The real-life church in which the film is set is, as previously noted, Episcopalian. More confusingly, Malone is said to be the grandson of a priest, Father Patrick Malone, author of the journal and founder of the Antonio Bay Church, even though, at least technically, according to the rules, there have been a few exceptions to this over the years, as Ireland famously knows, Roman Catholic clergymen are forbidden to marry or have children. So the question is, how could his grandfather have also been a priest, which is interesting? Is he himself also Episcopalian, even though he seems to be of all the signifiers of a Roman Catholic? Nevertheless, his religious calling is presented to us as a family tradition, just like his propensity for guilt. Now, the fact that the film itself perhaps seems a little unsure as to what denomination Malone belongs to means that we have an interesting blurring over of the state's famously Spanish and Mexican Catholic past and, of course, present. Still a lot of Catholics in California. It's a seemingly minor background detail, which again gestures towards the real-life origins of present-day California. The Hispanic and explicitly Roman Catholic history of the state, which is, of course, forcibly superimposed over the region's original Native American history and culture, has often been obscured by a more recent white Protestant and Anglo-American culture, which became dominant in the, from the mid to late 19th century onwards with the discovery of gold and the American takeover or the American invasion as some uh, more recent historians call it. The central role that the church plays here in the film serves as a reminder of the foundational role that the Roman Catholic Church 
trade and the Spanish colonization of California. Now the crumbling mission ruins, which became the subject of considerable nostalgia in the late 19th and early 20th century, were to the ever expanding citizenry, citizenry of American California, the evocative remains of a picturesque but fatally flawed civilization that had immediately preceded their own, of course, far superior colonization effort. Just as the monastic ruins of medieval Britain were fetishized by 19th century writers, architects, and artists, so too did American photographers, artists, and tourists find the missions irresistible, regarding them as, quote, romantic subject matter evoking the lost grandeur of the past. But this romanticizing of the missions did much to obscure their inherently imperial, exploitative, and oppressive nature. The network of fortified settlements, settlements which underpinned the military, administrative, and theological authority of first New Spain and then Mexico in California began in July 1769, when a land expedition including the Franciscan priest Junipero Serra arrived at what is now San Francisco Bay and erected a cross to mark, quote, the founding of the mission San Diego de Alcala. And I apologize to any Spanish speakers in the audience. I have no Spanish whatsoever, as you've probably guessed. And quote, over the next 60 years, 20 more Franciscan missions would be established among the California coast. Prominent Californian cities, as you can see, which grew out of Spanish missions include San Francisco, Santa Barbara, Carmel, Santa Cruz, and of course, Los Angeles. The mission era lasted for 60 years, ending when Mexico gained independence from Spain. With the passing of the Emancipation and Secularization Decree in 1834, the missions were dismantled, quote, and within a decade, some 10 million acres had passed back into private hands, and nearly 15,000 Indians who were essentially kind of taken prisoner in these missions. I could go into this in a lot more detail, but I don't have time. Nearly 15,000 were freed from mission restraints. And it was only very gradually that, quote, the romantic narrative of the mission past has been su supplemented with a wide range of other perspectives. But this is particularly, uh, I can't recommend this book highly enough. It's an incredible book and I draw upon it a lot myself, Benjamin Madeley's um, American Genocide. So he has highlighted this. And he views the abuses of the mission system as a precursor to the even more devastating acts of genocide, outright genocide. He, he rightly um, states it in great, huge amount of detail. It's quite a shocking book, um, actually, if I had not been aware of the extent of this a precursor to the even more devastating acts of genocide which occurred during the initial decades of the US rule. He argues that, quote, the California India population cataclysm of 1846 to 1873, so this is what happened after the Americans took over the indigenous populations, absolutely decimated by disease and particularly by violence at the hand of, of Anglo-American settlers in particular. He says that during the era when Spaniards, Russians, and Mexicans colonized the coastal region, California's Indian population fell from 310,000 to 150,000. It was half. And he points out that the um, uh, journalist Kerry McWilliams, he wrote a really excellent history of kind of California and then a book about Southern California in the late 1940s, initiated a long debate over the nature of these institutions when he compared the Franciscan missionaries to Nazis operating concentration camps. Now, given the foundational significance that the mission system holds in California history, its association with forced conversion, with imprisonment, and the violent suppression of the region's Native American population, the prominent role which both Father Malone and the local church play in the fog is, I think, even more suggestive. As Leader notes, while the church is perhaps the institution traditionally most valued in horror films, this is certainly not the case here. Indeed, he goes on to say, in this premise, it is not a defense against darkness and evil, but a repository of shameful secrets. It is built with stolen funds. Its walls contain the objects that the ghosts want most, which is a solid gold cross, which is made with the gold that was stolen from them. So this is a brilliant image from later on in the film where you actually see the um, Father Malone sort of hand over the gold cross to the ghosts in the hope of appeasing them. As Leader says, the cross no longer repels the dead, but attracts them. It is not a signifier of the power of Christ, but of historical shame. As well as evoking the frenzy of greed, which marked the beginnings of American California, the thirst for gold which transformed what had then been a quiet backwater into an rapidly expanding and actively genocidal American state. The fog's tale of vengeful ghosts seeking the return of what is rightfully theirs evokes the abuses of the pre-American era. 
Because this Spanish era is only very briefly referenced in the form of the town's name and the Spanish doubloon briefly mentioned by the character Nick, it's perhaps even more telling then that the fate of the original inhabitants of coastal California, the indigenous people who inhabited it for thousands of years before Europeans arrived, is on the surface at least completely ignored. But although the just to finish up then, although the ghosts which terrorized Antonio Bay are white, and we never actually see them in close up, I think we can assume as much from their backstory. They're kind of like zombies, they're always kind of in shadow. The case could be made that their status as lepers has actually othered them in a manner that means, as was the case with Native Americans post-1846, their extermination could be justified by the townsfolk. Michelle T. Moran notes that California legislators in the early 20th century, quote, called for a leprosy policy that would transport anyone with a disease out of their state and even off the continent. And incredibly, I mean, California was also like a, a, fun, a really important text when it came to American eugenics and the idea of racial purity. And I don't have time to talk about it, but a lot of very interesting work that's been done by a critic called um, Alexandra Stern. Now back to leprosy, these proposed measures were quote, part of a broad pattern of racial intolerance and racialized notions of disease. They were particularly used uh, as sort of, uh, leprosy was considered in particular a disease of Chinese immigrants, and the disease was used as a means to target that population as a physical and moral threat to white residents. There's been a lot of really interesting stuff about the very racialized and racist um, targeting of specific immigrant populations um, populations that were seen as undesirable within Anglo-American California and sort of criminalizing them by dint of using legislation around disease. And leprosy is actually a big part of that. And Moran has written a very good book about this. So just to finish up then, the plotters who profited from the sinking of the Elizabeth Dean were clearly not only just in search of funds which with, the, with which to consolidate the fortunes of their fledgling settlement, mm -hmm. but I think they also clearly saw Edward Blake and his fellow leprosy sufferers as a threat to the health and the security of the fledgling settlement of Antonio Bay. And I think what this means is that um, it's just another reminder of the fact that although the fog belongs to the progressive tradition of American horror cinema, particularly from the 1970s, which challenges the heroic light in which the nation so often views itself, it's important to remember, and I hope I've provided some evidence for this, that the, that the fog is also a distinctively Californian um, horror story. And I think it gains a lot of resonance and is even more interesting when we consider it in relation to the state's unique an often shameful history. Um, this extract from my book is from a chapter where I also talk about the Winchester Mystery House, and I talk about the Donner Party, and I talk about like sort of foundational um, horrors within California history. And so it, it actually hopefully works well within, within that context. I also talk a lot, I start off by talking about Messiah um, of Evil. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, thanks. This is the very end of the film, this sh shot, which um, scared the absolute hell out of me when I first saw this film when I was about 10. It's a wonderful moment. Um, and if you want to hear more of that kind of thing, uh, my book uh, that I mentioned, there's a book, there's a book and it's out in July and it's 90 pounds. So it's very, it's quite expensive, but order it from for a library, um, uh, you know, or if you're a millionaire, you can buy it. So thanks so much for listening. Um, Thank you so, so much, Bernice. This was such an interesting talk. I I never really thought about uh, the California Gothic and horror until really recently. So especially uh, thinking about uh, this movie uh, and just so many stories and um, even how uh, today um, there's so many I was thinking of like ghost tours uh, that you can do, especially in California, hunted boats, hunted hotels yeah. and all these places. Um, I thought it was just so, so interesting how it, it reconnects to, uh, I guess, even popular culture today. Yeah, I um, mean, sort of the, the impetus for writing the book, really. And I should say there's there's. Um, there hasn't been a lot done on it yet. There was a, a book done in 2017, a very good essay collection. And there are two other uh, very good critics I'm aware of who were ones working on a monograph on a very similar topic. Um, Charles Crow, who's a very esteemed American Gothic scholar. But actually, weirdly enough, California, for some reason, has tended to be left out of the American Gothic story. It tends to be um, not considered a particularly Gothic place. And I mean, one could say that 
everywhere is gothic if you think into the history enough and I think particularly with California the sense that it's kind of this uh from an Anglo-European or European perspective kind of a new territory that doesn't have the baggage of the past involves literally building over it and like one of the things I discovered sort of realized while writing the book is that um I've written a lot about suburban gothic and um I realized that a lot of the suburban gothic texts had written up before I had not really noticed that they were all set in California. <laughs> so, you know, there's a, there's a lot going on there. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, I wouldn't say it was fun to ride. It was a hideous tread, trudge and I'm really glad to be rid of it. But um, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it's decent. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. As, as you, as you just said, uh, thinking about especially American horror and American Gothic stories, they're mostly set uh, on the East Coast, or yeah. at least the most famous one. I was I was actually thinking yeah, now. East Coast or the South, um, the rest of the country gets a wee bit neglected, but California exactly, particularly exactly. gets left mostly, out of the story. Mm-hmm, mostly because California is also always presented as the sunshine state that yeah. it's sort of like uh, has this all golden image of it. And no one would think uh, about all the horrors that actually lie underneath the surface, especially what you mentioned of indigenous genocide and the way that the church has operated in uh, very uh, sneaky (laughs) ways. It has the church uh, being a bit nefarious, who would have suspected it? Uh, Absolutely. In the US, in Canada, uh, there's lot to unpack there but yeah. um, in Ireland as well of course yeah yes yeah. absolutely absolutely so I'm seeing that there is a few questions sure. for you in the Q&A so I will start with um Claire who's saying uh thank you so much for that Bernice fascinating stuff thank you I wonder if you could say a bit more about California and race eugenics that you mentioned briefly in the talk Yeah, this is something I talk about in my last chapter, which actually focuses on um, Jordan Peele's film, Us. It's a really interesting film about a middle-class African-American family and their doppelgangers. And a really amazing Mexican film called Desierto, which is kind of a, uh, or Desert, which is kind of a survival horror film. You can actually find it on Amazon Prime. And it's about um, Mexican migrants and they're trying to make, one in particular, trying to make his way back to his family in Oakland in California and being intercepted by a horrifically racist kind of Trump fan, essentially. They don't explicitly say it, but he's got all the signifiers of like MAGA. And um, actually, when the film was released in Mexico, they used clips from Trump's speeches to actually soundtrack the trailer, which I thought was a a really interesting touch. Um, But yeah, uh, there's a critic called Alexandra Minister, who's written an excellent book about California and eugenics. Unfortunately, I can't remember the exact title, but it's in the college library. Um, if anyone's listening as a trinity, the name is Alexandra Stern. And she talks really about the fact that um, essentially, in a nutshell, that California was like a perfect incubator for American eugenics, because particularly when the Americans took over, there was a sense that William Henry Dana talks about that, um, that particularly like that basically the Spanish and the Mexicans hadn't really done, they weren't really fit to take it on, that they had made a bad job of it. And that it really it took the Anglo-Europeans, it took the it took basically the Americans, white Americans to take it over and to really make a success of it. And of course, I mean, California was Spanish, you know, it was and of course it was indigenous as well. Um, But there was a a very rigid attempt to kind of control the levels of that kind of influence and to impose this predominantly Protestant white Anglo-Saxon culture on it and repress uh, not just sort of the Spanish history, but of course the Native American history even more so, which had already been kind of repressed by dual or multiple colonizations or several colonizations. So um, Stern talks about particularly about eugenics gatekeeping and the idea that there were kind of good type of immigrants and bad immigrants and that particularly uh, migrants coming from Mexico, which of course is literally on the border, it's next door. And it was Mexican territory up until it, that, what the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which I think was 1848. I always get dates slightly wrong. So I, I checked them in the book, but verbally, I can't guarantee. Um, so, you know, but but even though you have these incredibly close family links, historical links, a sense that Mexicans kind of didn't have the same right to move to California um, as, say, you know, white Europeans. They were more acceptable. So what I do actually is I compare the film Desierto to the story of the Donner Party, which is, of course, about white European migrants, predominantly Irish and German, actually, um, moving to to California, having this catastrophic incident with cannibalism, um, but that being presented as this like story of heroic migrants, you know, over, they were kind of romanticized then to a large extent as um, 
called Pioneer Martyrs of California by one commentator in the late 19th century. I was very different from how um, particularly Mexican migrants who were literally going next door were treated. Um, so yeah, I, I should say Stern's book is fantastic and she goes into this in a huge amount of detail. It's a very interesting volume. Um, so oh, it was 1848. Thank you very much, Charles Travis. Um, <laughs> I got it right. It's not often I do. <laughs> Okay, we have we have another question from David. Um, during your presentation, which was fascinating, I agree. I kept thinking of Hitchcock's Vertigo and the Birds. Carpenter, of course, references Bodega Bay in the Fog. Would you describe Vertigo and the Birds as other examples of California Gothic, or are they something else? Yeah, I absolutely would. And actually, one of the things that broke my heart about this book is that I had. I had wanted to have a chapter about Hitchcock and I just didn't have enough room um, because I think Vertigo is such a splendid film. I mean, so much of that film is about Spanish missions, actually, and the return to the Spanish mission and the bell tower and everything. And um, of course, the depiction of San Francisco was tremendously gothic. And then, I mean, yeah, I mean, the fog is, of course, as you, you point out in your comment, saturated with references to Hitchcock. I mean, Hitchcock, one of his first great American films was, of course, Shadow of a Doubt which, uh, you know, small town California is this incubator for, for sort of a psychopathic man. And actually I use, I talk about shadow of a doubt, but I didn't actually have, and I talk about psycho, which is Norman Bates is Californian, which you tend to forget. Uh, and actually, uh, but um, I didn't get a chance to talk about vertigo. And actually I talked about the birds in another book in a lot of detail, my book, Rural Gothic. And I didn't want to repeat myself because I was already um, touching upon some of the text I talked about before. Um, so that's why I left the birds out because um, I talked about ecological horror a lot in another book. And I honestly didn't feel that I could do, uh, that I, I felt that I would be rehearsing arguments I'd already made. Um, so that's why I didn't talk about the birds, but no, absolutely like Hitchcock specialized in California Gothic, I would say actually, I just didn't really get a chance to talk about that in the book. I wish I'd written that sentence down though, actually I didn't. <laughs> There you go. Um, you can keep it for the for the next. <laughs> oh God, no! I'm not. I'm not writing else. That's me, John, with California. Except for visiting it. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, so we have another question from Andy. I think I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your name. Um, the observation that the dead are attracted to the cross rather than repelled by it by by it is wonderful. And given the church's long history of gathering treasure, are you aware of other films or stories that engage with religious symbols from this angle ra rather than its spiritual power? Yeah, that's a great question. And I should say that that's um, Murray Leader's observation that I was quoting. So just to give Murray due credit, he's got a great piece, a great article on the fog, um, and particularly the fog and communications technology. And he makes that point. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, uh, I actually, I mean, I'm sure there must be. There's nothing that immediately comes to mind. And I should say it's because generally when I engage with religiously themed horror films when I'm teaching them, they're generally about someone getting possessed by a demon um, for some reason. So I can't think off the top of my head of other films where where the dead are kind of like seeking to, to sort of take control of this artifact as opposed to, you know, recoiling in horror. Uh, but I would be interested myself to know if there was any other examples out there, because you're right, it is, and as Leader points out, it's kind of the opposite of what usually happens. So um, unfortunately, I don't have an answer to that one, but it's, it's a good question. Um, I'd like to know the answer to that myself. Uh, I think we have another question from... Quiva, um, who's saying, thanks for the talk. Did I hear you saying that the Donner Party was represented in one of the movies you mentioned? And I was wondering if it is depicted, is the fact that it is a horror Im immigrant journey and has an Irish element makes it a useful as makes it useful as a Gothic story? thinking about outsiders, et cetera. Mm. Well, yeah, um, one of the main families on the Donner Party were called Murphy. Um, I don't know if they were any relation to myself, but actually the Murphy survived very well. Um, they were one of the groups that actually came out of it um, without, as far as I know, without having to eat each other, which I can't say is the truth necessarily of every Murphy family on a road trip. Um, but <laughs> but um, yeah, um, so I think 
it, it's in the film Messiah of Evil, actually, you find out that the reason there's kind of like all these references to a kind of a dark stranger that's coming back a hundred years later to kind of take over the town. And it's kind of a vaguely Lovecraftian thing. It's a little bit kind of indistinct. He's coming from the sea. But you find out that he actually spent time with the Donner Party and ate human flesh. There's a, there's a really kind of weird impressionistic flashback to the Donner Party. And they kind of bugger up the time as well. They see it happened 100 years before, but the film's clearly set in the late 70s. So they've kind of got their timeline about 30 years out there. But um, it, it plays up in an interesting way. And I think in an underappreciated way, the gothic resonances of the fact that one of the sort of founding myths, or not myths, actual true, true historical events of um, white California involves um, family groups that have to cannibalize one another in order to survive. They also killed several Native American guides, which tends to be weirdly overlooked. The fact that they actually murdered Indians who were sent to help them um, is sort of like blase, it's sort of brushed over. There's a great film called Ravenous that actually is an incredible um, sort of take on um, the Donner Party by a director called Antonio Bird. I would really recommend that for anyone who's into it. It sort of mixes it with the Wendigo myth as well. But yeah, it's very gothic. I mean, generally the, the Irish angle, I haven't seen it played up a lot, to be honest, in it. There tends to be more attention played to the Germans because a lot of the main players, the Murphys seem to have been a little bit more peripheral. Um, but certainly, and I'm, I don't know if any of them ever wrote an account of, of it, but I wouldn't be surprised actually because most of them survived. But the most famous kind of survivor accounts weren't written by the, weren't written by the Irish. They were actually written by members of the Reed family in particular and uh, some other survivors as well. So um, yeah, uh, you know, Mrs. Murphy and her kids survived. So there you go. Murphy's are resilient is what I would say. <laughs> There's a lot of us. <laughs> okay, I think we have time for one last question from Eric. Uh, looking forward to the book. As a Californian myself, do you address the state's position as a center of later postcolonial American progressivisms as represented in the film? A female hero, radio technology helping protect the community, the church falling apart, how the journal is found, etc.? Yeah, um, not, not so much that side of things. I do talk a lot about California as kind of a and uh, like where California goes, the rest of, 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 of sort of America goes. So actually my second chapter, the chapter that comes after this one is about how California, I think, um, played a big role in developing modern American horror, particularly modern American horror fiction in the way that's often been overlooked. And I talk about infrastructure a lot and the fact that, you know, um, its association with suburbia, its association with the interstate highway system, which are things I've kind of talked about before, but I revisit them within a particularly California context. And also in terms of um, some of the problems associated with these new built infrastructures. So particularly um, the phenomenon of the serial killer. I have a, a, a lot about like killers on the road and um, I'm sort of revisiting that from a California perspective. And uh, the idea that um, sort of the, the modernity of California means that it harbors certain kinds of fears. Um, so there's actually a little bit of a true crime in there as well. I talk about um, like Michelle McNamara's book about the um, the Golden State Killer, uh, Joseph D'Angelo, of course, before she died, of course, before he was identified. But stuff like that is in there. There's actually a fair bit about true crime. And I just saw someone mentioning true crime. I think there's definitely a huge overlap between the Gothic and 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 crime, absolutely. Um, they're cousins, <laughs> I would say, in many respects. Um, so sorry, that's not a very coherent answer, um, Eric, but that's my answer nonetheless. Um, sorry, it's been a long day. <laughs> thank you, thank you very much. I was just having a look at the chat and there is a lot of praise, a lot of thank yous for, for the talk uh, and such an insightful presentation. Uh, and they're also asking, where is Messiah of Evil streaming? <laughs> yeah, um, now, as far as I know, it was streaming um, very recently on, if anyone has the horror app Shudder, which is $5.99 a month, it's actually really good value if you're into horror films, it's much better than Netflix. Um, it was streaming on that. I can't remember if it was the Irish and UK version of it or the American one, because I might have a VPN. Um, so, but, <laughs> I think it was actually the local version, but um, you can also find versions of it on YouTube, or at least you could until fairly recently. So the, 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 the quality of the print isn't that great, but until fairly recently, it was on YouTube. So I haven't checked in a wee while, but it was definitely still there up until, oh, somebody's sort of chiming in here. That is that, um, is it on Twitter? Um, yeah, someone says it's definitely on the US version of Shudder. And it's actually been released, I think, quite recently on um, 
on DVD as well. So it's worth, it's worth, worth, yeah, worth checking out. It's got two remarkable set pieces that are just absolutely stunning. One of them is almost like an updated version of The Birds, except it's in a cinema with zombies. And it's just, it's it's really superbly atmospheric. A lot of really important, like early, like early 1970s New Hollywood people worked on it kind of before they were famous, who went on to collaborate with more, with, with, famous directors um so um yeah it's well worth checking out it's uh it's just the, the set design it's jack fisk who's very became a very famous set designer work with david lynch and people like that it's absolutely stunning um so yeah i recommend it i'm not yeah, getting yeah. any money from the makers of it i should say as well <laughs> no financial stakes in this no advertisement no advertisement unfortunately I should get a little sponsorship little suit on me with a formula one driver um <laughs> Okay. Uh, so thank you, Bernice, so you. much for joining us. This was such an amazing, amazing talk. I, it made me really want to go back to all these like old 80s or movies that haven't haven't seen in quite a while. Um, so thank you. Uh, and thank you, everyone else for joining us. I would just like to remind you that our ne our next seminar is going to be on the 12th of April, so in two weeks, and we will have a showcase of uh, poems and prose from um, students from the Oscar Wilde, postgraduate students from the Oscar Wilde Center uh, with uh, Dr. Kevin Power. And you can find the link to register in the Zoom chat here, but it will also be circulated uh, closer to the time of the seminar. So thank you again, everyone, for coming today. And uh, we hope to see you in two weeks. Thank you again, Bernice. The hobbies against community. and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the time of the year library. As well as being heard. The hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years. <laughs>